When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Welcome to another podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. As always, you can catch new episodes every Thursday. Just subscribe to stay up to date. Today, we mark a historic landmark for the London Blue Plaque Scheme. Plaque number 1000 has just been unveiled, commemorating the work of the Women's Freedom League. And to help us understand more about the League's role in the suffrage movement in the early decades of the 1900s, we're joined now by our three guests. Hello, uh, I'm Howard Spencer. I'm Senior Historian in the Blue Plaques team in English Heritage. Hello, I'm Jill Liddington. I'm a suffrage historian and author. Hello, my name's Susan Sked and I'm a freelance historian. Welcome to you all. Thank you for coming on. Let's begin with Howard. You're the senior historian for the Blue Plaque Scheme, Howard. For anyone who's not aware of it, can you tell us what it does and why it's important? Yes, of course. Well, English Heritage runs the London Blue Plaque Scheme, which is the scheme that goes right across London, Greater London. So that's quite a large area and was previously run by the Greater London Council and before that, the London County Council. And it's been going for over 150 years. What the plaques do essentially is mark links between buildings and usually individuals. Not always. We'll talk a bit about that a bit later. And they act as, in the words of Stephen Fry, who was on our awarding panel for a while, they act as portals on the past. And they really act as a prompt for people to look at the names and think, oh, yes, that's that's interesting. Somebody lived there. So it's a reminder that we're sort of, you know, walking in the footsteps of people in the past. And particularly in the sort of age of smartphones and so on, it's very easy for people to look up the names of the people on the plaques and therefore gain a greater understanding of history and in particular London history. They're also a soft power tool in terms of conservation as well. They don't confer the sort of protection that listing does, which is the, you know, the listing of buildings to prevent them from being demolished or, or damaged, hopefully. But they do raise awareness about the importance of historic fabric. And in that way, they have this sort of conservation power as well. And I should say, too, that the scheme is, as far as we know, the oldest um, in the world at over 150 years, founded in 1866. And it has inspired many others. There are many other blue plaque or other materials are also used, but plaque schemes throughout Britain and also around the world that have hopefully been inspired by the one that English Heritage now runs. So effectively, you can be walking anywhere through London and you might just pass a blue plaque, look up and notice a name and be able to look it up. And next thing you know, you might be 
a mile along and you can see another one. So there's history everywhere, basically. Well, that's right. I mean, there's they're all over Greater London, but there are particular hotspots such as Hampstead, Chelsea and parts of Bloomsbury uh, where you, you can see a lot and you can trace your own uh, walking tours using uh, such tools as the English Heritage app and the English Heritage Guide to London's Blue Plaques, which is a book, Walk Around Guide. And you can also go on the tours that uh, Susan, uh, my fellow guest, runs, where she takes people around to look at various plaques in parts of London. Excellent. And how does someone nominate a person from the past for a London blue plaque? Are there a particular criteria? The main ones are that to be considered a figure has to be deceased for 20 years, absolutely no exceptions. And the idea of that is to allow their reputation to settle and for it to become a historical judgment rather than something else. The other thing is that there has to be a surviving London building associated with them. The plaques only go on actual authentic buildings lived or worked in by the person or people concerned. I see. Could you tell us then what's the oldest blue plaque? The oldest surviving blue plaque is the one to Napoleon III, the French emperor, and it's just off St James's Square. And it went up in 1867 and it went up remarkably while he was still alive they didn't have the rule about 20 years or anything like that and it's got the imperial eagle on it and um yeah it's kind of it's there's a there's a slight irony to that i guess really that the oldest plaque is to a french emperor <laughs> uh, the first one to go up was actually to byron and that was in hollis street so roughly on oxford street where the big john lewis store is now but that one has been long lost that's the poet is that right Correct, yeah. Yes. So uh, let's uh, bring in Jill to talk about the Women's Freedom League. And we'll talk to Susan a little bit later about some other aspects of the location of this blue plaque. But Jill, you proposed the plaque, didn't you? Tell us what the Freedom League was. Well, the Women's Freedom League was one of the three major suffrage organisations that campaigned for votes for women. And yet it has too often been overshadowed. The Pankhurst WSBU, Women's Social and Political Union, occupies the key site in popular memory. And Mrs. Fawcett's National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies has now been recognised publicly with a statue of her in Parliament Square. The Women's Freedom League may have been just third in terms of membership, but it always punched well above its weight. And the League's day is still to come now. Why was the League formed? Well, in autumn 1907, a group of suffragettes broke away from the Pankhurst WSPU over what they saw as its lack of internal democracy. These suffragette rebels set up the Women's Freedom League. It was to be democratically run, like Fawcett's National Union, but it adopted militant tactics like the WSPU. Yet unlike the WSPU, it shunned violence, believing instead in passive resistance. Who were the key figures in the Women's Freedom League then? Well, the key figure was the president, Charlotte Despard. She was somewhat eccentric and she was already a veteran campaigner. And in 1909, she met the young Indian lawyer, Mohandas Gandhi, and she was profoundly influenced by Gandhi's belief in civil disobedience. Despard had already refused to pay her taxes. It was her passive resistance to unjust, very unjust laws. Despard lived in Battersea in South London, where she was a poor law guardian. And in North London, Belsize Park, up near Hampstead, Margaret Nevinson, 
also a key league campaigner, was also a poor law guardian. And both these two women brought valuable local government experience to the suffrage campaign. And what were the actions of the league? What what did the league actually do? Lots. (laughs) Local branches like Battersea were active from the off. Their first winter, which was, of course, 1907 to 8, was hectic. They had sandwich ladies, sandwich ladies who paraded the streets of London, bearing on their shoulders large and probably rather heavy posters proclaiming votes for women. And Despard was cast in the role of a roving firebrand, tirelessly shuttling across the country, spreading the league's message. But then in 1908, anti-suffrage Asquith became prime minister. Suffrage organisations needed urgently to up their propaganda everywhere. Fast out of the starting block was the League's caravan tour, which toured rural England, braving all the thuggish hostility. And some of it was very hostile and very thuggish. The van, of course, was drawn by a horse and they nicknamed him Asquith. Hence the slogan, fanning it with Asquith. (laughs) But probably the most flamboyant and daring of the League campaigners was Australian actress Muriel Matters. She blew into the Edwardian political scene with bracing gusto. Within just a few months of Asquith's ascendancy to number 10, Muriel, along with two other suffragettes, went into the House of Commons and entered the Ladies' Gallery. Its vile grill, they call it a vile grill, separated the MPs below from the voteless women above. So they chained themselves to the gallery ironwork and then Muriel's commanding voice interrupted the Commons proceedings, crying votes for women, while the other women cascaded suffrage leaflets onto the MPs below, for which actions they were all sentenced to a month in Holloway jail. That's remarkable. Um, (laughs) An Australian accent ringing out in Parliament as well. (laughs) Exactly. And she was an established actress, so she knew how to project her voice, as the MPs below found. But that wasn't the end of Muriel Matters' courage and innovation. In 1909, indefatigable Muriel Matters charted an airship. She was suspended in a woven cane basket and she was lifted, lifted aloft from Hendon Airfield. The air balloon loudly advertised in very large letters, Votes for Women and Women's Freedom League. And Muriel sailed over London, distributing league handbills as she flew. So um, apart from the skies and and, and Parliament, <laughs> um, where was the Women's Freedom League most active? Were there particular parts of the country where it was doing most of its work? Or Yes, I think so. London, definitely. In North London, in Margaret Nevinson's Belsize Park and in nearby Hampstead, women doctors like uh, Elizabeth Knight, for example, refused to pay her taxes and she was a league activist. And then further south in London, as well as Despard's Battersea, in Kensington were writers and journalists like Lawrence Houseman and his tax-resisting sister, Clements. Beyond London, the league was, of course, strong in big industrial cities like Manchester, recruiting school teachers in its southern and eastern suburbs, Eccles and Sale. And then in, in Yorkshire, in Sheffield suburbs, the league was also well organised. And further north, in industrial Middlesbrough, the two Coates sisters ran an energetic league branch. And in towns, 
the League also had a following. In Ipswich, in Suffolk, Constant Andrews, a self-employed music teacher and, as it happens, vegetarian, was a fearless leader. And in smaller towns like Southsea near Portsmouth in Hampshire, and then even out in rural communities like, say, in Sussex, the League was also active. So really, um, it had um, a considerable influence um, in various pockets of the country. What was its main achievements, if you had to highlight a, a few of them? Well, probably its most distinctive initiative was protesting against the 1911 household sentence. As well as tax resistance, Gandhi had inspired spiritual resistance to unjust laws. So the census boycott sprang from the League's philosophy of non-violent passive resistance. In June 1910, the League proposed a boycott of the census. And writer Lawrence Houseman in Kensington tells the tale. He wrote, before the census began, I drew up a scheme for organised resistance and offered it first at the Pankhurst WSPU, which rejected it, then to the Women's Freedom League, who had already, I found, started a similar scheme of their own. With them, I worked. And those words resounded with me, with them, I worked. So what was special about the 1911 census? Well, as per usual, when completing a household census, it was always the man who held the census pen. Always. Added to this, the 1911 census included particularly impertinent and intrusive questions for women. There were intimate questions about women's private lives, about fertility and marriage and infant mortality. So the League's ringing battle cry to members was, Legislation without representation is tyranny, for the census now infected the daily lives of all British women. Around the country, League organisers and branch secretaries quickly grasped their organisational strategy. Speakers like Lawrence Houseman, and he was a very good speaker apparently, were in heavy demand, his feet scarcely touching the ground. And then belatedly, the Pankhurst WSPU announced it too would join the protest. It brought with it its well-known names, uh, not just Emmeline Pankhurst, but also Emmeline Pethick-Lawrence. And with it came its impressive panache for publicity and headlines. But the census boycott was always going to be controversial. The suffragettes were publicly accused of a crime against science, a crime against science, meaning a crime against the census data's statistical accuracy. Certainly, Fawcett's large suffragist national union urged its members to comply, and very largely they did. But, like Muriel Matter's balloon fight, the mass evasion of suffragettes caught the headlines. Evasions across London and Manchester, in Portsmouth and Bath, in Ipswich and in Bradford. But probably the most memorable was the lone suffragette evading in a caravan in rural Wiltshire, somewhere on the vast Salisbury Plain. But where? They didn't find out. Well, maybe hiding somewhere <laughs> near Stonehenge or something, Could be, yes. which is on Salisbury Plain, one of uh, yeah. English Heritage's uh, most famous sites, of course. Yes. You talked about the battle cry of these women, but uh, battle and indeed war was soon to come, wasn't it, with the First World yes. War? What was the suffrage picture like when war broke out eventually in 1914? Well, by then, the Pankhurst WSPU supported an arson campaign and they set fire, suffragettes set fire to empty buildings. Nobody was killed, 
but it was a dangerous tactic. In contrast, the Women's Freedom League stuck to its belief of non-violent tactics. When the war broke out in August 1914, few people in Britain, apart from unless they were foreign correspondents or worked in embassies or particularly well-informed, could have foreseen it. And it was one of the most traumatic moments. Votes for women campaigners found themselves split on the war. Mrs Fawcett and Mrs Pankhurst supported the war effort. Charlotte Despard and Emmeline Pethick-Lawrence did not. However, in 1918, the war at last over, there was victory. Women over 30 won the right to vote. It was a partial victory, but a victory at last, the right to vote at long last. Mm. What you just said there, actually, Jill, got me thinking about what Susan and I and Anita Arnand discussed in our Sophia Julep Singh podcast recently. So that's an interesting contrast mm. there. But uh, Jill, why has the Women's Freedom League, certainly until recently with this 1000th blue plaque, been so overshadowed? Well, when it comes to telling the historical story, books matter, autobiographies matter. The first was Emmeline Pankhurst, My Own Story, out just before the war, a very personal account. Next came Ray Strach's The Cause, 1928, written from a suffragist, Fawcett point of view. But undoubtedly, the book with the greatest impact was Emmeline's daughter, Sylvia Pankhurst, The Suffragette Movement, out in 1931, offering merely brief references to the League, mainly focusing on the WSBU, of course. All these three suffrage classics have been reissued by Virago Press. The League's telling the historical story was different, sadly. Margaret Neverson's poignant autobiography, Life's Fitful Fever, came out in 1926, fell out of print and is near forgotten. I think few people know of it. Lawrence Hausman's autobiography, also poignant, was The Unexpected Years, published 1937. It too is out of print, partly because he was overshadowed for most of his life by the eminence of his elder brother, poet A.E. Hausman. But in my opinion, it's still well worth reading, really well worth reading if you can get hold of a copy. And on the census protest, Lawrence summed it up as, and I quote, the women had come off victor from the field compared to the Liberal government. However, many suffrage historians would still say that the WSPU shapes the historical imagination, particularly the popular imagination, particularly on film and television. This is, however, begun to be challenged in the new millennium. Yes, and as you've been saying, the survival of these books and biographies, etc., are the reason that we're talking about it today. So it's, it's a good thing that there's yeah. some still around. I suppose they're probably quite valuable then, aren't they, as historical documents, but also have a monetary value. Uh, expensive. <laughs> yeah. I had to book share buying Annie Kenny's uh, Memoirs of a Militant because it was so expensive. I couldn't afford it on my own. In terms of what you've just described there then, Jill, can I infer that you are a leaguer, if that's a phrase? Would you have joined the Women's Freedom League or would you have joined a, a different organisation if you were around at that time? Well, had I been around, for me, I think it would have to be the League. I might have joined the Pankhurst WSPU initially, but would have had growing doubts about its undemocratic practices and certainly would have left by the time of its arson campaign so violent. 
I might have joined the Fawcett's National Union in that it was the largest organisation and had branches everywhere. But I think I would have found it ponderous and stodgy, at least until the Labour Suffrage Pact and the years just before the First World War. So I think it has to be the League. Its commitment to non-violent civil disobedience and to passive resistance would have attracted me and held me, I think. And the Women's Freedom League is the great suffrage survivor. By 1918, the WSPU had already suspended its operations. The National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies changed its name to NUSEC, the National Union of Societies for Equal Citizenship. The Women's Freedom League, its name alone unchanged, continued to campaign for full equality. The vote was only just the start, and it continued right up to 1961. And though I was still at school, I myself could perhaps have joined. Susan, perhaps I'll ask you actually which one you might have joined. So I'll, I'll do that if you've got an answer. Well, I don't want to be copycatting Jill here, but when I came to research the Women's Freedom League, I came very much from a non-suffrage background, a history background. Um, I'm scratched the surface, I'm an 18th centuryist really. And therefore I came with very open mind as to all the different organisations. But I know Howard has it on record when I submitted my research to him, I said, I think I would have become a WFL woman myself. I think for me, it's their appeal to democracy. I don't want to sound controversial, but the Pankhurst didn't exactly listen to many within their organisation. And it was the increasingly autocratic approach that was one of the reasons for the split and for the WFL to set up on its own. And I think any organisation knows how hard it is to work with the many different talents within. And I think the WFL somehow managed to do that very well. And it's interesting how it attracted more people to it, prominent people. But so, yes, I'm afraid, Jill, (laughs) I'll be representing the Barnet branch. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. And Susan, of course, you did the research for English Heritage for this blue plaque, this 1000th blue plaque commemorating the Women's Freedom League. How was the location for the plaque selected? There are essentially two aspects to carrying out this research. The first is to sift through all the extraordinary work that Jill and other suffrage historians have done to piece together the narrative, the bare bones of the story of the WFL. And secondly, is to literally track them down in the London streetscape and find out which buildings were associated with the Women's Freedom League and its leading members and organisers. And crucially, following on from what Howard said in the opening remarks, is which of those survive to this day? Because it is a matter of finding out which is the most appropriate building, which building can best tell the story of the Women's Freedom League. And I have to say there were various contenders, but it really became pretty obvious that one Robert Street in the, just off the Strand 
was the clear leading contender because it was the base for the WFL from 1908 through to 1915. So absolutely when the organisation was at its most active and was engaged in all the extraordinary campaign elements that Jill has so beautifully outlined. So fairly central then, quite easily visited in London, I'm guessing. Absolutely. It's it's incredibly central. Uh, It's just literally one block away from the Strand. And that is also a consideration when weighing up. It's not merely uh, historical significance. These plaques are part of our public history. And so they have to be clearly visible. They have to catch the eye of a passerby, as Howard said, and then lead them to think, oh, I hadn't heard of that. I'd like to find out more. They can't be tucked away behind high walls or large trees. They've got to be visible and legible. And this one certainly fits the bill. So it's a really lovely moment when you know both in terms of historical significance, this is the building that is the most, what's worth, revelatory in a way, and also in terms of visibility. And the crucial element is, of course, the owners of the building are very happy to have the plaque on it. And that is something I think sometimes we forget that all the research in the world can't persuade somebody that they ought to have the plaque if they're not sympathetic. So I think we have to extend a huge thank you to the owners of the building. Definitely. And one Robert Street, this was obviously their base for the league. What exactly were they doing day to day from this particular location? And can you tell us, for example, how many rooms they had or how many floors? Um... Well, they started off on the first floor of 1 Robert Street and then gradually expanded, as far as we can tell, so that by 1910, there was a free library of suffrage books and pamphlets that um, members could come and borrow from. But essentially, what is so wonderful about it is this building saw so many people work there and organised both the campaigns. We had a fantastic publicity shoot to coincide with the notorious chaining of um, themselves to the women's grill in the House of Commons. There was a publicity shot staged on the corner of Robert Street, just outside the building, where one of the members was chained to the railings. And that was issued as postcards. It was printed as postcards. They had their own a regular newspaper or magazine, I should say, The Vote, which was published that very soon came in-house and was compiled from the adjacent property at 2 Robert Street. And we've got to think about how this is a national organisation. So the correspondence, the making sure that reports of what's going on in the regions is being fed in and also the instructions as to which campaign are we focusing on now, such as the census boycott of 1911 is fed out. So I think what is wonderful is that it's very much got multiple associations. And one of the real joys was coming across the shorthand for the telegrams for the building, which appears in an advert for the WFL, and it's Tactics London. And I think that tells you everything you need to know. It's the nerve centre of the organisation. Yeah, that's a really good description, isn't it? I can imagine a, a hive of activity with people making things and writing things and you know, sending out correspondence, gathering perhaps newspaper clippings and filing those away or something and organising, as you say, this library and people perhaps making tea, making cakes. I don't know, something like that. I'm sure there's all kinds of different activities taking place under this one roof, isn't there? Absolutely, yes. And, um, you know, they were also very 
it's both what happened inside the building, but how they projected themselves outside. We've heard how they were so brilliant at publicising the cause, but they were also very conscious of the history of the movement, the struggle for women to gain the vote. And so very soon after they moved in, they organised a tribute march to John Stuart Mill, who had first proposed that women should have the vote back in the 1860s. And his statue stands in Embankment Gardens just down the road from um, Robert Street. So they organised a procession to mark him. And it's that sense of, I always feel with the WFL that they really listened to lots of different ideas. People were able to come in and sort of carve out their own campaign and make their mark. And so therefore you... Perhaps that's one of the reasons why it has gone under the radar a little bit, because it doesn't have one totemic person leading it, like Emmeline Pankhurst, that it responded to different members so that you, as you've heard, you have these wonderful caravan campaigns and these different people who are standing up and getting pelted with vegetables and being booed and jeered. And yet what they were doing, they knew it was worth doing and they knew that their tales would be fed back published in the vote and promulgated and sent out to other members so that it would hearten others. Because let's face it, it was an uphill struggle to persuade not only at the national level for Asquith to even listen to them, but at the local level to persuade so many of the people who were so sceptical that women were fit to hold the vote. And would one Robert Street have been a women-only space or would there have been also some men contributing to the cause within the building? I believe so. I mean, I I can't give you an absolute um, chapter and verse of who came and went, but as we've already heard, it's not a single-sex organisation in the sense of there was also the Men's Political Union for Women's Enfranchisement and that actually was based around the corner in Buckingham Street. And so it's that collaboration. We have a plethora of organisations springing up to represent different aspects and find another tactic to see if we can lever in a different part of the campaign. And it is interesting that the personnel just continued to sort of amass, dare I say it, refugees from the WSPU as, um, for example, the Pethick Lawrences, who came to join the WFL. So I think that sense of open and inclusive and this perhaps identity is an open and inclusive identity. And this, I think, is an important point to say it wasn't just about the vote for the WFL. It was to establish equality of rights and opportunities. So they would also be very keen for women to share the same employment rights that men had. And a prominent figure within this was another recipient of an English Heritage Blue plaque, the barrister Helena Normanton, and she was a WFL member. And they very much supported her quest to become qualified as a barrister, which she duly did. For people who are interested in architecture, as they do their walks around London, how would you describe the architecture of the building and and also its history? Um, It obviously had uses before it became this central base for the Women's Freedom League. Well, that is also rather wonderful, isn't it? Because buildings accumulate their histories and their associations. One Robert Street is actually a remarkable survival because it's one of the few remnants of the massive Adelphi speculation, which the late 18th century architects Robert Adam and his brothers James and William Adam embarked on in the 1760s. And 
it was a pioneering form of building because it offered flats for Londoners, for fairly wealthy Londoners, I should say, rather than whole houses. Um, And number one and number two, Robert Street, thought to be one of the earliest places where you could buy a flat or lease a flat. Now, the only problem with this was that it cost rather a lot more to build than the Adam brothers and their financial backers expected. So it very quickly ran into financial problems and actually had to be given away as lottery prizes. So for £5, you could buy a ticket and hope to win a flat in this extraordinary development. <laughs> wow. Um, it, it attracted criticism, but it's it's sort of a novel form of housing. And I think that, again, has another interest for this, you know, the blue plaque draws attention, of course, to the WFL, but it also raises questions about, oh, what about this building? And why it's so extraordinary is because the main bulk of the Adelphi development was shamelessly demolished in the 1930s. It was a great, it's a great disaster from the point of view of the conservation movement, but it did lead to the founding of the Georgian Group, which now campaigns to champion Georgian buildings. And very happily, number one, Robert Street has the protection of being listed. It's listed grade two star. Right. So really nice story behind the building. And I would love to know what the WFL made of that history, as it were. So you'd characterise this as a Georgian kind of building with large sash windows, lots of light coming in, that sort of thing? Absolutely. And some rather nice fireplaces, Adam fireplaces. So an air of grandeur, but it was converted, you know, a mixture of residential and office use. So quite an interesting and setting for such a forward-looking organisation. What happened to the building after the Women's Freedom League left? Well, it carried on being in sort of mixed use. I mean, it's interesting that number one, together with its neighbours, number two and three were became joined together, and number three for some time was a hotel. Actually, Robert Adam himself, I should have said, lived in number three and has his own plaque at that address. So you have got the marrying up of two different histories side by side almost within the street. Some interesting neighbours there. I bet you could go down a a rabbit hole with a Robert Adams sort of tour, couldn't you, around London? Because you could then go up to Kenwood on Hampstead Heath in North London, couldn't you, where where he's very much associated. But yes, I think that would be a very nice thing to do. Yes. Well, that's another idea for a podcast, isn't it? The Robert Adam tour of London. Um, (laughs) Which buildings belong to him? Okay, very interesting. Let's bring back Howard now to talk about the blue plaque itself and how it's sited on 1 Robert Street. Is it fairly easy to visit, Howard, this new plaque, this thousandth new plaque? Yes, indeed it is. And and as Susan said, we do think about this very carefully when choosing the locations, as in, you know, they can't be behind high walls or down driveways and so on. And, And as Susan said, this one is most definitely very easy to see right on the street and very easily accessed. It's near to Charing Cross Station, just to the um, east, near to the Strand as well, which which lies just to the north, and to Trafalgar Square. And there are a number of other interesting plaques in the area. For example, you've got Rudyard Kipling on Villiers Street, right by Charing Cross Station. And then you've also got, I mean, Susan talked about the, the Adelphi development. There is actually a rather unusual plaque, which is, takes the form more of a, a stone inscription, 
on the site of where the Adelphi was. This was at a point when, when the London County Council was still putting plaques on sites to commemorate this terrible loss, which Susan has described. And it, it does list a number of the august figures that lived in the Adelphi development, who included uh, the actor David Garrick, uh, the authors Thomas Hardy and George Bernard Shaw, and also the London School of Economics was uh, based there in its, in its early years. So yeah, there's, there's plenty else to look at in the area if you fancy going to have a look at, uh, at the Women's Freedom League plaque. How did the Women's Freedom League come to be this one, this thousandth blue plaque then as part of this London-wide scheme? Is it just coincidence? Well, yes, just to be clear and a slightly pedantic point, perhaps, it, it's, it's, this is the number 1,000 on our list. It's not the thousandth to go up because there have been over the 150 plus years of the scheme quite a few losses, about 100 plaques have been lost to demolition. But it is number 1,000 on our current lists, and that's obviously you know a bit, of a, a bit of a landmark. It is largely, or partly, serendipity. It's a public scheme, as we, as we discussed earlier, a public nomination scheme. So it's, it, it depends a bit on, on what comes in and on what order we get the permission, the research done, and also the permissions to put the plaque up, which Susan referred to earlier on, we're absolutely dependent on owners saying yes, which they fortunately usually do. We do, in the team and at English Heritage, we do get to do a certain amount of choreography on the order that they go up. And we did think that the Women's Freedom League was a particularly appropriate one because since 2016, we've been highlighting the gender disparity in plaques, the fact that that it's only 14% or so of the plaques that actually represent women. And we've been trying to do something about that with some considerable success actually we, we do now uh, our, our awarding panel are selecting more women than men for blue plaque and that's the first time that's ever happened and that's been the case for two or three years now and we're getting more nominations coming through there's, there's, a, there's a steady stream of, of nominations of plaques that are related to women and I think we also like the fact that this was a collective plaque so you're not sort of privileging one individual and you're also nodding to the fact that history is not all about you know great men to use that sort of awful phrase it's it, it's um it's about collective endeavor too so i think we like that and that's part of the reason we, we thought this was the, the, a very appropriate one to be the number 1000 how significant is it then to have reached this landmark number it's like a person's birthday really you know I mean, it's, it's a cause for celebration it's also a cause for a bit of reflection about what we're doing what we're doing that's that's working what we might change that sort of thing so it's 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 a it's a good number to have reached though and how long have you been working on the scheme? Can you remember when you started what number blue plaques you were at? Well, I, I, I attended the unveiling to the 800th plaque. So I guess I've been involved in, in over 200 over the last 18 years or so. Yes. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a good long time. Given the number of plaques now, obviously, um, this is the thousandth. Is there a danger that we're reaching too many plaques in Greater London. Are there too many or or are there certain areas of London that could benefit from a few more? Well, I, you, you won't be surprised to hear, I would, I would say that, that, that there are certainly, certainly more to do. I mean, there are, just to give you a, a few stats, there are 3.7 million domestic dwellings in Greater London and a thousand plaques. So I think that comes out at about 0.002 or something <laughs> percent of, of actually have an official plaque on them. So yeah, it's not, doesn't strike me as over coverage. I think there's, there is more to do, but, but you are right to say that in certain areas, there's a danger of overkill, I think. I mean, there are certain bits of London where particular streets and squares I can think of where we would have to think very carefully before putting up any more. 
because it's important to keep a sort of gold standard and not make them completely commonplace objects. Otherwise, they, they lose their value or they're in danger of losing their value. Yes, bearing that in mind, how do you see the scheme developing in the future? I think there are a few challenges, not least in the in the point sort of identified 50 or so years ago by Andy Warhol when he said, you know, everybody will be famous for 15 minutes. There's a sort of celebrity culture and there are many, many more names in such areas as entertainment that could be proposed for plaques. So there's this sort of sheer volume. So there's going to have to be some work done to sort of make sure that there's a proper sift on that. I think we might see more plaques to groups like the Women's Freedom League. I mean, we've already done a plaque to the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, which went up recently, last year, I think, in Great Smith Street in in Westminster, close to the Houses of Parliament, which is where that suffrage organisation had its offices. We do aim to put a plaque up to the Women's Social and Political Union as well on their former headquarters at the moment. That hasn't got the necessary permissions, but we're still hopeful that that will happen eventually. Uh, And of course, last year, we also had the plaques that commemorated the Match Girls strike in Bow. So there have been quite a few of these sort of group or collective plaques. And I think I think we may see a bit a bit more of that in future and also perhaps a bit more emphasis on the building. The scheme was originally conceived with a sort of preservationist aim. The London County Council called it an indication of houses of historical interest. So I think that might be a way of narrowing things down a bit and keeping it specific and keeping it manageable in its size. And also, I think it needs to remain, you know, eclectic and exciting and something that people will look at them and actually go, oh, I'm, I'm interested by that. Yes. Well, let's bring in um, Jill and Susan to perhaps comment on our, our last sort of question here. What do you think the members of the Women's Freedom League would have made of this blue plaque honour around 100 years on from their campaigns? And also the fact that I guess that we're talking about them in a podcast. <laughs> Well, I I doubt whether they could predict podcasts. On the blue plaque, they'd be absolutely delighted and would say about time too that we got recognised, the Women's Freedom League. So great. I'm glad to hear you say that, Jill. I I hope they'd be pleased about it. And 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 I'd agree that it's high time. Yeah. Yeah. Susan, did you have any thoughts on this milestone as well, how how the uh, members of the League would have reacted? I completely agree with Jill and and that they would be delighted. And I think that sense of history and tradition, as we've heard, that the Women's Freedom League carried on until 1961. And the suffrage movement very much has that spirit of remembrance and honouring the people who did so much and often at great personal sacrifice. So I think this would be perfect. And also, I think they never, when I've read their writings, they were never complacent about once we've got the vote. The game's over. We can pack up. It's a continual fight for equality. And without wanting to be political, I think that's something that is possibly not, we're not quite there yet. Mm. And I suppose they never even had an eye on history. They just had an eye on the present to get the present changed. And then eventually it becomes history, doesn't it? It was absolutely compelling to be involved in a suffragette organisation like the Women's Freedom League. There was only today and then there was tomorrow and then the day after that, some new tactic, some new strategy, some new crisis, something Asquith had said. So the time to reflect on its historical legacy was a luxury they didn't really have until much later. But it's a good thing that we were able to do that now. And I think... Um, absolutely. 
the putting up of this blue plaque really helps give them the uh, credit they deserve. Yeah. So, well, thank you very much, all of you, for talking to us. It's been really interesting. And um, we look forward to covering more blue plaques in future. So thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're on the trail of a historic heist of the Crown Jewels from 1303. He really had a huge variety of things stored in this treasury, like books, a map of Mundi, so a painting of the world. And of course, money in 1303 was actually made out of silver or gold. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>